Welcome to Tooled Up Education's Researcher of the Month, where Dr. Cathy Weston selects a paper from a notable researcher that will be of interest to parents and school staff everywhere. Dr. Mimi Tatlow-Golden is Senior Lecturer in Developmental Psychology and Childhood at the Open University, UK, where she also co-directs the Centre for Children and Young People's Wellbeing and the Rumpus Group, Researching Fun. Mimi's research takes a systems and rights perspective to children and young people's well-being. She specialises in complex studies, integrating multiple methods and or views of all stakeholders, and has a particular interest in children's own views of their experience. Her research spans children's experiences of education, their self-concept and self-esteem, mental health, and their engagement with food and food marketing and fun. She has conducted research for national and global funders, and she sits on the advisory group of the EU-funded BOOST study into mental health support in schools and is an advisor to the World Health Organization UNICEF and many other organizations and governments around the world. Welcome, Mimi. How are you? I'm great, Cathy. Thank you for having me. You know, sometimes when I read different bits and pieces of research or people's research biographies, I get very jealous. And in your case, I was very jealous because of the topics that you have been exploring in your research career. And one of them that we're going to talk about this morning is the concept of fun. Well, isn't it great? I do really enjoy the reaction that I see on people's faces when I say that I, I'm interested in researching and, you know, and building a research group who look at fun, because I've got to be honest with you, Kathy, most of the time when you tell people you're a researcher, you don't get the most sort of excited reaction. But when you tell them that you're looking into fun, somehow everything transforms and everyone wants to know more about it. Yeah, it's really, I, I feel very lucky to have stumbled on it. And everybody has views on it. You know, we'll get to this, but when I was reading about your work, I started thinking about the concept of fun and in particular, the sort of the cultural expectation that you sort of get your work done, then you have fun. But we'll come on to that. I started firing off all sorts of ideas and I think everybody has something to contribute to this sort of interest and debate about fun. But we're here to talk about a particular paper which caught our attention called the Who I Am study, the meaning of early adolescence, most valued activities and relationships and the implications for self-concept research. And that was published in the Journal of Early Adolescence a couple of years ago. So tell us a little bit about that study first. So this was a big study, which we carried out in the greater Dublin region with 526 children aged 10 to 13. So sort of at that cusp of moving on from childhood to becoming a young person. And what triggered my interest in the idea of self-concept was seeing a thing that's called a self-concept scale. So now, before I even launch into that, I need to explain why we care about self-concept. So the self-concept is how we think about ourselves, who I am. And the ideas that we have about ourselves really motivate how we respond to situations in life and how we cope. And part of your self-concept is your self-esteem. So that's how do you feel about yourself and your sense of what am I worth? And what we hope for, for every child, is that, you know, as a result of their being, but largely as well as a result of their upbringing and their early relationships, 
that they develop a sense of being valued as a human being. So they get that mirroring for it from a one-to-one relationship with a carer who really cares about them and it doesn't need to be a mother. I always want to add that because there's a lot of kind of mother blaming in the whole field of, of mental health and child well-being. But, you know, so a relationship with a close person who really gets you and sees you And I think most of us have been lucky enough at some point in our lives to have a relationship where we feel seen and appreciated. And and that's very transforming. So our hope is that every child has that, you know, in their early years. But of course, it doesn't always work out and there are variations. So psychologists, and I'm a psychologist by training, psychologists are very interested in the idea of self-esteem because when you have low self-esteem, that's part of a diagnostic for depression. And so there are big questions about whether having low self-esteem leads to depression or whether is it being depressed that causes us to have self-esteem. We think it's probably what we call bidirectional, so that those influences work both ways. In any case, there's a huge interest in understanding children's self-esteem. And I got interested in it, think looking at the ways that psychologists were measuring this idea of self-esteem and looking at the scales that they use, so the surveys that they give children to fill out and the questions that they ask them, I found myself thinking, this is really very limited. Because what they were asking children about was a kind of a restricted set of domains, as we call them. So those would be focused on how good am I at school? How good am I compared to others at my school sports? How popular am I at school? And sometimes, but not always, your relationship with your parents. And sometimes, but not always, things about, you know, I often get in trouble for things that I do. And I looked at this and I thought, well, you know, the children that I know (laughs) have such a wider sense of who they am and derive a sense of meaning in their life from way more than that sort of micro sort of funnel of things that are important to some children and some of them are important to all children. But it felt very, very limited. So I thought I really need to know from children and young people themselves, how do they think about what do we value? And part of this is informed by my philosophy of needing to speak with children and young people themselves. Because there is a bit of a tradition in psychology and sometimes in education as well of adults know what's up and adults know better and adults know the world and need to dispense that knowledge to children. And, you know, of course, children have a phenomenal knowing themselves. And so I was very influenced by those kinds of ways of thinking about children and their rights. So I did a study with lots of different methods. We did drawing with children and young people, which lots of people said that won't work. But in fact, it really did because they think it's only for younger children. But it was very powerful as a method. The young people filled out what we call identity pies, where they told us about proportions of what mattered to them and they did surveys. And then I also spoke one-on-one with over 100 children. You know, so it was quite a big study and quite involved. And what did we find? We found that the children themselves valued some of these things that were in these scales. But in some cases, they valued them for different reasons than adults were prioritizing them, which was very interesting. And they also valued a whole pile of other stuff that was profoundly meaningful to them that adults were not looking to check into. 
And so that says to me that when we do self-esteem research with, with children and young people, and you know, there are tens of thousands of psychological studies that use self, these self-esteem measures, it's going to be limited in what it can reflect back. And it's often going to miss out on what actually matters to children and young people. And of course, your sense of self-worth derives from things that are of value and of meaning to you. So just to say in a complete nutshell, so, you know, I've, I've talked at length about this now, but in a nutshell, what were children valuing? They were valuing beyond their parents. They were valuing something that seems obvious, I think, to most people who know children, which was their siblings, their cousins, their grandparents. They valued friendship, not just popularity in a group. And they valued their pets where they had pets. And some children even who didn't have pets valued the idea of a pet. So they had a longing for it. And then in terms of their activities, they valued a whole pile of stuff beyond those sort of competitive team sports that take place in school and the way that the wording of self-esteem scales is sort of focused towards those. I mean, anything and everything you can imagine, whether it's dance or playing on the trampoline with your friends or kicking a football around just with a couple of pals or your tech activities or whatever it might be. So there were a whole range of those. And the reasons that they valued them were so interesting. So here they come. One of them was not being good at something necessarily. So asking them, are you good at this? Doesn't really get you to the heart of it. What they valued was the feeling of doing it and getting better at it. And what you're suggesting is they had a sort of a, they were all, already had lovely growth mindset philosophies and they, they valued being able to get better at something, whereas adults might assume that self-esteem is just about what you're good at. Yeah, Kathy, that's right. And the idea was that children had a sense of being good at something itself compared to others isn't the thing that they value. It's more about being able to feel that sense of achievement, of picking up skills along the way. And that was what gave them a sense of pleasure and what made something meaningful to them in their descriptions. So that's something that not a lot of self-esteem or there are often called self-concept scales pick up on. And that was really interesting to me. But alongside all of that and, and woven all the way through all of their answers, was fun. And I, I, this was just really interesting as I started to code. And you can imagine that was quite a process with all of the, these data from multiple methods with, you know, between 100 and 500 children and young people. And threaded through it all was, was this idea of fun. And it just was like this little echo that started up in the data that I was looking at. And I started asking around, saying to people, so where's the research on fun? And what's the, you know, what, what does the psychological research say? And everybody would be like, you know, we were saying earlier about your face lighting up and they'd be like, fun, how wonderful. And then they go, no, I'm not aware of any research on this. And that, of course, just got my researcher's brain kind of really excited. And I started exploring that and that became a chunk of the analysis. And, and I wrote that up as, as you've seen in the paper there. So what did children say about fun? You know, what was really interesting to me about their responses around fun was that looking at them, it was a whole range of stuff. So fun could be sort of a what I call a, a kaleidoscopic construct that touches on all kinds of different things. And yet it was powerfully meaningful to the children in the various things they were describing. So where fun was described, it was a marker of something that was really important to the children and young people. And that felt really important to me, particularly when we think about 
a world in which we have this kind of, in the Western world anyway, or the global North, we have this way of thinking about fun that's a bit split. You know, we think that children need to have fun and they ought to have fun and it's part of a childhood. But on the other hand, I think a lot of adults are quite wary about the idea of children having, say, too much fun or fun in the wrong places and the wrong ways or the wrong time. And so I really wanted to dig into this more deeply. And several years later, once I went to the Open University, where I am at the School of Education there, I finally had the opportunity to, to set up a research group. So we're exploring that now. And it's just such a lovely project to be able to delve into. So Mimi, when we think about fun, I suppose we think about children laughing and playing, the role of play. How did they interpret fun? What was in that cluster of activities according to the children in that study? So fun was the one descriptor that was attached to every single activity, not by every child, but if you looked across the whole range of activities and relationships. Fun was the one that popped up in relation to every single relationship and activity. And how did they describe it? They described it in a whole range of ways, but not necessarily in that sort of heightened, excitable way that we might think of. I think a lot of people have that immediate reaction of fun means, you know, as you say, laughter, raised voices, you know, a, a lot of excitement. It wasn't necessarily like that, that children were talking about fun as something that was quite deep as well. So there was one young fellow who really stuck in my mind because what he drew a picture of as most important to him was a camera. And then he described why that was important to him because his aunt, who has since passed away, gave it to him and that they had had a lot of fun together with him learning how to use the camera. So that's something about a relationship and an activity that's really meaningful, that has this huge resonance because the aunt is no longer with him. But the learning and the exploration and the relationship with somebody close was that sort of engagement and time with somebody who meant something to him was what made it fun for him. Was there any sense that it was the feeling that came with that activity, with that particular attachment figure that was more important than the activity itself? So was he thinking about the, the remembering the feeling and seeing and sort of interpreting that as sort of having a sense of fun? You know, I, I'm not sure that I can speak for that young fellow myself. And I'm not in that way, you know, because it's a great question. I think fun is for sure a feeling. There's a lot of debate out there about, you know, what fun actually even is. And, you know, is it an emotion? Is it an experience? Is it a response to a meaningful activity? Or is it what makes an activity meaningful? And the truth is, Kathy, we don't know the answers to those questions yet. So I'd say, give me about a year. I'll come back to you and we'll have another chat and I'll fill you in because at the Rumpus Group at the Open University, we've now got two fabulous PhD students. Um, we have a, a wonderful research fellow who are all working on these different angles and aspects of fun. And of course, I'm doing my own research around it as well. So we'll know more in about the next year or two for sure. Parents are always asking, certainly asking me, you know, how do I know my child is having fun? How do I know they are happy? So parents believe that there is a natural association between a child having fun and being happy. So we'll ask you about that. But in terms of how we know a child is having fun, 
I think one of the implications of your research is that it's a very subjective judgment, isn't it? It's you have to think about your own child and what, you know, they might be sitting quietly playing Lego, having fun, as you suggest, rather than being very boisterous in the garden with several friends. Absolutely. So, I mean, just to pick up first on on that question around how do I know they're happy and fun and happiness. So fun is slightly different from happiness. So I think happiness is something about a general sense of contentment. And that's something that as a parent, you would usually be able to sense from your child and observe in them. And you'll usually know, for example, from their behavior. So if, if they're acting out or quite withdrawn in various ways, that might be an indication that they're not feeling that happy. Fun is a, is like a sort of more intense experience, whether it's a heightened one or a sort of deeper, quieter one. And you're absolutely right. It, it depends entirely on the person and what is meaningful to them. So, you know, for some people, I mean, I think sometimes about, you know, the way in schools, there's still a sense of don't be sitting there, you know, on your own, looking at that book of dinosaurs, you know, off you go and play with everybody. And for some children, sitting on your own with that book of dinosaurs might be the only activity that's left to you if you're being excluded by a group. And then that wouldn't be fun if you would rather be playing with that group of children. But for some children whose inclinations are more about sort of thinking and learning or, you know, who don't want to or aren't ready to be super social yet, for some of them, you know, sitting and being completely immersed in a book of dinosaurs or whatever it might be. So reading a book can be profoundly fun as well. And that, you know, you asked, how can I know if a child is having fun? The only way to know is to ask them. And to be respectful of their responses, because I think we've all been guilty of being incredibly prescriptive in terms of what our children should be doing to have fun. Or we might be suggesting to them as they're gaming that they should stop playing on the computer and go and have some fun. You know, they have very strong ideas, as you know, as to what gives them joy. I know. And you know what? There is this thing in the adult world about the right and the wrong kind of fun with children, I think. I certainly see it from time to time where, you know, there's this sense that children should be doing fun things at the right time in the right way, but they shouldn't be too loud and it shouldn't be too distracting and it shouldn't go on for too long. And, it, you know, all of these kind of prescriptions. And I'm not suggesting that anybody's life should be only fun because it can't be by definition. You know, fun is something, about, like I keep saying about this sort of meaningful, a sense of deep meaning associated with activities. But looking on from the outside, you mightn't know what the meaning is. So, you know, like a group of kids messing and you're, you know, you might as an adult look at them and roll your eyes, but the relationships that they're building in those moments might be incredibly important. So, and, you know, this comes back to what I, where I started, which is this philosophy of understanding children by respecting their insights and knowing that they have a huge pile of knowledge that you don't have access to unless you have a relationship where there's a flow of information and really respecting what they have to say. And, you know, because I've got a psychology part to what I do, I am often come back to this, this point where adults are often afraid of what children are going to tell them. And often kind of push back a little bit. So that if somebody says, oh, I'm feeling sad or I don't like that, adults often find themselves being uncomfortable with hearing that and therefore denying the child's reality and saying, oh, no, sure, you're, you're fine. 
you know, oh, no, you're fine, go off and play here. Or, you know, that sort of sense that's meant to be encouraging. And it's done often for the best possible reasons, but it's not helpful, you know, so to build that relationship. And one of the best ways of building a relationship with a child is having a little bit of time to do some things that feel fun to both of you. And it absolutely doesn't have to last for three hours on oh, a Saturday God. afternoon. No. So, I mean, I think if you uh, recently I was reflecting on my own relationship with my father growing up, who was so much fun. And I was thinking about, you know, after reading your research that I need to turn up the volume on my own fun mum's side because he was so jolly and funny and it, it wasn't about time spent with me. He was a very, very busy adult, but it was about the fun we had. Children love teachers who are fun. They love parents who are fun. And I think we just need to remember, you know, that's what children remember when they're my age and they're middle-aged and they're looking back. They remember the fun very vividly. Yeah, they really do. You know, and, and parents who, I'm not sure that I had the experience personally of being parented that you did, but I do remember sort of slightly wacky occasions where my mom was flipping pancakes in the kitchen, you know, really as as high as they would go. And, you know, the dog jumping up to try and catch them. Um, so, you know, kind of mad stuff. And look at it here, you know, this many, many years ago now, and I'm they still remain so vividly in my mind. Although I do want to say something really important here, which is that I would hate for there to be a kind of compulsion for there for adults to necessarily play and have fun with their children because it's really about a relationship that works and so I think it's like taking the um what's the right phrase for this so so removing the restraints from adults that say that adults should be serious and must be serious in their relationships with children or whatever but at the same time finding the right balance and not having there was a uh, a woman called Martha Wolfenstein in the in the 1950s she wrote about a fun morality that had crept into parenting manuals in the States. And I mean, it certainly hadn't in the 50s in the UK, but later that has started to come in where there's a sort of injunction that parents must play with children and so on. And, you know, it's about picking up on things that feel right, not mm. saying we will now play and we will have fun. So, you know, fun with, a, with an adult might be sitting down to watch a child's favorite show with them on Netflix or any other provider, you know, because you might sit down and just enjoy that together. It might be completely silent. There might be nothing else going on other than the togetherness of watching. And that might be so fun. Do you know what I'm saying? I, lo I love that point because the most fun of my whole childhood was being in the front seat on a long journey, just talking oh, to him, yeah. which I considered to be enormous fun. So I think that we need to take the pressure off ourselves as parents and trust the moment with our own children, the play, you know, it's just when you're together, things happen, don't they naturally? And they might say, oh, I want to climb to the top of the tree or let's play this. Or children are full of so many beautiful ideas in terms of what they want to do with their parents. So it's just about being together and then these sort of consequences flow quite naturally. I think that's a really good point, actually, Kathy, where you're saying children have so many good ideas and there's something about parents letting go a little bit and allowing themselves to feel permission to follow what a child is suggesting rather than necessarily feeling that they need to be in charge all the time in a particular way. And I think I was reading some recent research on sort of autonomy and play and having the courage as a parent to just sit back and just be there 
and just watch and listen. Children love that kind of attention, don't they? And you're just, you're not stepping in too much. You're just sitting back and reflecting what they're doing and asking great questions and just enjoying the moment. And not feeling like you need to be in charge or direct it, but really, do you know, like you would in any other relationship. So where you would give somebody the respect of saying, oh, that's what you think, or, oh, that's what you want to do. Okay, let's try this out. Do you know, rather than feeling like, well, I'm the adult, so I must be in charge. You know, obviously there are scenarios where we need to keep people safe and, you know, we're responsible for them when we're minding them and all of that matters a lot. But at the same time, there is a wealth of knowledge and insight that children have and, you know, that they often don't even share with adults because nobody's kind of listening. And we, we live in times where children live incredibly overscheduled lives for, for understandable reasons. Parents are busy. We want our children to have the best of everything. We stick them into every club. What impact, and I'm guessing the answer, but I'd love to hear it, does overscheduling potentially have on access to children's fun? Well, as you say, I think you've got the answer there just in the word overscheduling, haven't you? So, you know, if we think about it, maybe it's just even heavily scheduled. I mean, I can't answer that question, to be honest, because I think it really will come back to that idea of it depends on the child. So some children being busy from one minute through every minute of the day and on the go all the time is just what they need. And other children, like other adults, need some downtime in between and a chance to reflect. And, you know, sometimes being bored can be very powerful as an experience. So I think that's something where you need to be a little bit sensitive to the person around you. And I guess the other thing that I'd like to say there is that it's almost like if you have the means to overschedule your child, then your child is already in a privileged position because we're looking at so much poverty in families these days. And, you know, there are many children for whom being overscheduled is something that isn't even on the agenda because parents just don't have the ability, you know, and we're looking at people struggling with fuel bills at the moment and, and you know, let alone paying up for extra classes or anything like that. Absolutely. And it's very hard to want to have fun when you're hungry or you're cold. Well, you know, and very, very difficult and very difficult to have fun if you're worried. Mm. And so that's, you know, it's, that's a big, that's a big social issue that we're kind of finding ourselves living in the midst of these days. Let's talk about educational settings a little bit. You know, it always strikes me that my children will always talk about their favorite teacher as the one that makes them laugh. And it, it's it's intriguing, isn't it? You know, I think, well, wait a minute, are they learning or are they just having fun, <laughs> you know, yeah. in the classroom? But the lovely implication from your research is that quite frankly, if they are having fun, they're much more likely to be learning. So this is a really good question and one that I would say we don't know the answer to yet, right? My hunch is that there's certain kinds of learning that are way more amenable to feeling engaged. I mean, if you're fighting off the yawns, you're probably not taking in what's being said or what you're doing, right? Does learning need to be fun? I don't know the answer to that question yet. And that's another point where I'm going to have to say, I'll put a pin in that and come back to you next year. Because, you know, there's, there's interesting bits of research that are bubbling up where one of our PhD students, Emily Dowdswell, is looking at fun in children's accounts of their creative learning in school. Another one, Sarah Huxley, is looking at educators in 
informal settings. So she's working with coaches across continents, looking at, you know, physical activity based learning, but not learning around sports rather, but learning through being physically active and understanding what role fun plays in those settings. We've got a study going on in a school in South London at the Bellum where we're looking at children who do dance, so but physical movement rather than scripted things as a creative way of learning about curricular concepts in geography or geometry or whatever it might be. And all of those studies are underway at the moment. But I think an interesting thing you said there is about the idea that it should be either fun or learning, right? And, and is fun a dangerous concept that sort of diminishes learning? And there, I think we've got a real cultural split going on. So my colleague, Professor Kieran, he does work in Indonesia. And he tells us that in Indonesia, the fundamental concept from teachers is if the children aren't happy and having fun, then they can't learn. And it's not even a thing of how much fun should they have or how this or that or the other. It's just a fundamental premise. And so the teachers set that as a goal. So I find that quite interesting. I'm not sure that we do translate that across in this part of the world or even necessarily how welcome it might be. I don't know. I wouldn't imagine that Ofsted has a sort of, is this fun <laughs> box to tick? So, you know, one always has to be careful about making those kinds of comparisons. But I think my point is, it's not necessarily an either or, you know, we could be looking at a both and. And you've referred to the sort of the physical impacts of fun on a child's body. I think I've read a lot of research on the sort of the effects of laughter, for example, on a child's physiology, and it can reduce feelings of anxiety, etc. What do we already know about the physical impacts of fun on their bodies? And also, is that something your study kind of looked at a little bit? No, I mean, that is, you know, fun is so interesting in terms of how little we understand about it. So, you know, up comes another question that we really don't know the answer to. So, I would say the interesting thing that we do know is that the one area where people really do research quite a bit around fun is around physical activity. Because if you ask children anything about, you know, what is it that impels you to be physically active, they will always say it has to be fun. And if it's not fun, I'm not doing it. And it's quite interesting, you know, now in a world where we're so concerned about children's health and their physical well-being, and we're seeing a generation carrying more body weight than they should be, ideally, you know, for their health in the future and, and all of the well-being issues that come along with that. So it's quite interesting to think about how could we build ways of being physically active that children genuinely find fun and therefore are more likely to engage in. And so again, I have another researcher who's working on exactly that, on the idea of thinking, so Linda Plowright Pepper is working on this idea of building a movement culture where we enjoy movement and it's fun rather than we do sports for competitive reasons. And obviously that has implications for all sorts of things, the way a physical activity is funded in schools, children's access to a variety and diversity of different physical sports. So it's, again, it does go back a little bit to sort of health and social inequalities, because as you say, better resourced families will be able to introduce their children to a whole variety of different types of fun activities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
What about cost-effective ways to have fun, which I'm quite interested in? You know, immediately you can think back to a 1970s childhood in Ireland where, you know, you, you were thrown out into the open air and suddenly you were planning on building a hut or you were, you know, everybody is quite nostalgic about our, our own childhoods potentially. But there are cost-effective ways to have fun. It's not always, is it, about having uh, expensive equipment? Oh, no. I mean, it's about time doing things that you enjoy doing. That's really the formula, do you know? So it doesn't need to be about outings. It doesn't need to be about paying entry to things. It doesn't need to be about equipment at all. It's about time well spent on activities that people enjoy either themselves or together. And, you know, I do keep coming back to this, but it really is about what the individual child really finds powerful and meaningful. So for one child, going to the library is going to be fun. And for another child, having the opportunity to be spilled out into, you know, a field or an allotment or or a back garden, all of those things. I do think we have a physical, a built environment now, say compared to the 70s, where, you know, that's made for people who, you know, it's very ableist, it's very anti-children and older people. And it doesn't really give people freedom to explore and play because we're always thinking about children's safety with, you know, a world that's full of cars and, and a much less space for children to roam. So yeah, those are things that we can absolutely do on a sort of more social level. But uh, individually, it's about finding things that you personally enjoy and doing them together. And in my mind, on a sort of parenting level, I think what I'm taking from your work is the importance of attunement and just tuning into who your child is, what makes them tick, what gives them joy. And if you are a teacher or working in a school, I can just imagine doing a beautiful sort of classroom activity, that sort of identity work that you referred to about who we are, what makes us tick, what makes us unique. And sharing with the class what we all find fun, you know, and just sort of opening up that dialogue about fun, even with children themselves. That would be fun to do, wouldn't it? I could imagine great conversations in class, you know, and looking at the whole range of things that people find fun. I'd say you'd need to do it fairly carefully. I'm sure any teacher would think about this because you wouldn't want a scenario where, you know, X says they have fun with Y and then Z feels excluded because, you know, all of those things. But, you know, it would be just so interesting to see the range of, of activities. Because, you know, I did the research with class groups and, and the range within any one class, you know, in any given school was just so huge in terms of what was fun and why to the children in that class. Yeah, I, I could imagine it would be a real, a real icebreaker and a great way to get, get people talking. And of course, as you know uh, very well, I think years ago I, I was witnessing someone doing that kind of identity work in a, in a sort of deprived primary school. And the children who really were not having fun in their lives, they stuck out very, very prominently in the class. And, and they were children who were bereaved. They were traumatized, some of them, and they were that had to be dealt with first, it felt, you know, before they could have that dialogue about fun and play and identity. So that was something that stayed yeah. with me for a long time. I can imagine. And, you know, as we were saying, if you're anxious, hungry, cold, whatever, it's not going to be as easy. Although that does bring to mind another one of the drawings that one of the children in this, this study shared with me. And although it's a, a few years ago now, it just really has remained with me. And this child drew a picture of 
um, there were three three figures underneath when I first looked at it, just underneath the cloth or in a sort of homemade tent kind of a thing. And this child was saying, the thing that matters to me most is our under the duvet meetings that we have with my mom since my dad died. And Aww. so this was a child who's had a one sibling and a mom and their father had passed away and their mom had found a way. And again, you know, I'm not saying that every bereaved parent is going to have the bandwidth to do fun things, but fun can be as quiet as that, you know, as saying, okay, we're going to crawl onto the duvet because we're all feeling terrible and we're going to have a chat and check in on how we are. And gosh, I'm feeling quite emotional just describing this. You know, it was a very powerful image where this young person was was showing that the care and that sense of being together but and hidden away from the world and feeling seen and known and that that was a thing that was really powerful and meaningful for them. So there are all kinds of ways that we can access this experience and it that's why I, I don't like to be prescriptive about it. Yeah, and, absolutely. Know, it doesn't need to be expensive. It can be as simple as that. I have to return to the question of pets. I'm absolutely fascinated <laughs> yeah, by, pets. I remember years ago attending a conference where uh, it, was, it was about attachment and talking about how it was actually about children with autism and the researcher was talking about uh, difficulties around attachment. And then another uh, academic talked about autistic children's attachment to animals, which was so strong and so powerful. And I started thinking about what is it about animals that has this effect on families, on children? Mm -hmm. Do you know the pets was the, I guess, probably the other strand of findings that was the most powerful out of this study alongside the fun that was really another one of those where it was really striking because it's not reflected in, you know, the research when we, you know, nobody's self-concept scale asked them about pets, although they did subsequently include pets as an indicator in the Republic of Ireland in a child um, well-being checklist that they have. So pets, pets were phenomenal. Pets were about and I'll come back to, you know, another illustration of what one child described. And they said, I, I love my cat because she understands everything I say. And mm -hmm. that feeling of a nonverbal relationship that feels reciprocal and where somebody feels heard and seen in some way is an incredibly powerful one. And it absolutely can happen with an animal as well as with a human. And I don't know in the case of that particular child, whether it was a scenario where they didn't have that experience with people in their lives or whether maybe they might be on the spectrum. I just don't know. But the point is, it was there for them and it felt like a resource for them. And so, yeah, the, it's a very powerful thing, the relationships with pets. Fun was threaded right the way through their relationships with their pets. But so was the sense of care. And, you know, here was the other thing that was so interesting, because when children talked about their families and adults in particular and families, not surprisingly, they said, I love my mom or my dad because he or she cares for me. And then they would list all of these things that, that you know, their, their parents might do. And when they talked about pets, though, they weren't talking about caring. They were talking themselves about caring for the pet. So it was a way for them to express a caring relationship, but to be giving it rather than receiving. 
and I found that which is so absolutely fascinating yeah. because altruism and agency are extremely important components, aren't they? Of children's sort of self-esteem and resilience, and that cat needs them. That doggy needs them to take them for a walk to feed them. And I think again, it's a reminder of the need for children to experience agency in their own lives. Yeah, yeah. So the pets were absolutely huge and everything and anything from a snake to a hamster to a guinea pig to a you know not just a dog or a cat so there was a sense that they knew there was another being who was aware of their presence and that was an incredibly powerful experience for them last question Mimi about the pandemic quite clearly I mean your work uh, you know has become even more important in in the wake of the pandemic and we know the impact that lockdowns and the pandemic has had on children's access to to fun essentially what are your sort of feelings about what children have been through and also the implications of the pandemic for your own work how is that taking your thinking maybe in slightly different directions so what a good question I'd say there's quite a range of different kind of impacts and we're probably only becoming aware of them. We can see some, but many are, you know, yet to really unfold fully. I think it's one of those scenarios where, you know, education wise and in terms of learning and social life and all of that, again, you know, I'll come back to this idea that children who are living in under-resourced families and, and communities where they really don't have access to, say, Wi-Fi, let alone a good Wi-Fi connection or a laptop or whatever it might be, really suffered a lot more than children who were well set up, had their own bedroom, had a laptop, you know, and therefore could still be in touch with anybody and everybody they wanted to albeit we're in the middle of this this kind of shock to society that every child is experiencing as well. Some children have reported that it was a good experience. They got more time at home. They saw their parents way more. Their parents might feel slightly differently if they were juggling work and, and, and school care and schooling and, and childcare all at the same time. But the children have, some children have experienced that as very powerful and really meaningful. Others have found them being cut off from their social life, just very, very, very great loss. And we're only going to see, you know, over time how that's going to play out with this, you know, we've got two years now and who knows, maybe a little bit to run yet, how that will play out. In terms of fun itself and the pandemic, do you know, I'll bet that every parent has ways of describing and, and every teacher how they found pockets of you know, children's resilience, but also the ability to create resilient environments for children to be well in, which is something that I find really important is this idea of not expecting children to be resilient, but understanding that in order for children to grow well, we need to create environments that are good for them. And I take my hat off to teachers. I have to say, there's been a little bit of teacher bashing in some parts of the media in the last couple of years, but I have to say, anybody who switched to online teaching from one day to the next, who kept in touch with kids, who, who kept things ticking over. I mean, do you know at the Open University, we obviously, we our teaching is done through online modalities, but it takes us two years to build a full 60 credit module, if not three sometimes. And you know, teachers switched from one day to the next to teaching online, and some of them to teaching some children, you know, when there were health, children of healthcare workers, you know, in school, and, and others were at home. 
teachers have been just one of the absolute heroes of this pandemic and have kept things ticking over in the most extraordinary degree. And I just think they're absolute heroes. Absolutely. We can all agree with that. So Mimi, listen, thank you so much for your time. Quite clearly, there's a lot to talk about and we want to hear back from you, as you say, in a year's time. I would to get love to an come update. back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is so fascinating. And, uh, you know, it's exciting that we'll be able to share your lovely research through our research of the month for February. So everybody will be able to hear about the impact of your work. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for your interest. It's an absolute privilege, Cathy. Thank you. Take good care. Bye-bye. This podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.